in just a second and then uh, give you all a uh, beautiful afternoon to enjoy the Lord's Day. Galatians chapter 1. This morning um, I am uh, excited to begin a study of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And in 22 years of ministry, I've never actually preached this letter, uh, which when I thought about that kind of surprised me because this letter has been uh, extremely important in shaping my own faith. And so I'm not sure why I never preached on it. I, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, but that ends today. And uh, I think it's time, and I think our church is in a good place to receive this letter. And as you see on the screen, I'm calling this series 200 Proof Grace. And that is intentionally provocative because Galatians is a very provocative letter. The phrase 200 Proof Grace comes from a quote by an Episcopal priest named Robert Capon. And he's writing about the Protestant Reformation which is when we broke away from the Catholic Church 500 years ago. And Capon says this. He says, The Reformation, if we can put that up on the slide, there we go. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old 200 proof grace of bottle after bottle of pure distillate of scripture one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly the word of the gospel after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. In other words, he's saying that the Reformers rediscovered the gospel of grace. Pure, unadulterated grace. It must not be watered down. Nothing must be added to it. Nothing should be added to it. And brothers and sisters, that, in brief, is the message of Galatians. The leader of the Reformation, whose name was Martin Luther, was especially motivated by Paul's letter to the Galatians. He called it his own epistle and said that he had wedded himself to it. In other words, grace is not something that we receive and then forget. God's grace is something that shapes the entire Christian life from beginning to end. And so with that introduction and that explanation for the sermon title, uh, let's drink together no water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Verse 1, Galatians 1, 
it says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Notice that Paul claims this title, Apostle. And he connects that claim or that title directly to the call of Jesus. In other words, it's a title that is not and should not be given from men nor through men, right? Meaning that humans have nothing to do with this specific call. It was something that only the Lord Jesus could grant. And that's why I believe it is completely inappropriate for someone today to claim that title. There are no living apostles. Second, notice that Paul immediately talks about the resurrection, something that we're going to remember and celebrate this week and next Sunday. And in simple form, what that tells me is that Paul, even in this introduction is already preaching the gospel of grace with his very first breath. God raised Jesus from the dead. The entire Christian faith hinges on that fact. And then finally, this letter was written to a collection of churches. It wasn't one church, but it was many churches throughout a region known as Galatia, which is sort of northern, modern-day Turkey. And most of the people who were reading this letter were Gentiles, meaning that they were believers who were not ethnically Jewish. They were coming from other ethnic groups, other people groups. Okay, Verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So this is the official greeting of the letter, and the very first word is grace. And I'm not going to assume that we know what that word means. Okay, so I'm going to define it for you. What grace means, very simply, is receiving some kindness that you didn't deserve. Okay, receiving some form of kindness or some gift that you have not earned, that you do not deserve. Okay, so it means... Really, it means being given a gift when what you deserved was a punishment. It means, children, it means getting ice cream when you deserved a spanking or a timeout, right? Adults, it means getting a promotion when you deserve to be fired. That's grace. So Paul says, grace to you, church and peace from God. And then Paul immediately follows with this perfect summary of the gospel message. But before we do that, in order, and before we look at that, in order to understand 
the solution that the gospel is presenting, we need to clearly define the problem. None of us can honestly look at the world or read the news even from just this past week and deny that we have a serious problem of evil. This world has a problem. And the problem is that there's a lot of evil in it. And it's very, very difficult unless you completely ignore the news and completely stay in a box and stay away from everybody else. And even then it's impossible because you have some too. You may try to ignore it. You may try to distance yourself from it, and many do. You may try to make excuses for it. But evil is real. It is not an illusion, as Buddhism claims. And really, that's the easy-to-understand part of the problem. Okay? I don't have to work very hard to convince most of you that evil is a real thing. Most of us get that. The hard-to-understand part of the problem is what the Bible calls sin. And here in verse 4, Paul uses that word in a personal, possessive way. He calls it our sins. In other words, he's saying we are the reason why Jesus needed to deliver us from evil. It's not that the problem is out there. It's the problem is in here. As in the words of Taylor Swift, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. And I love that song. Um, so, to be clear, and not to get too technical, but this is important, okay? A sin is a thought, a desire, or an action that breaks or fails to keep some part of God's law. Okay? But it's more than that. It's also the tendency that we have to do those things. We have, according to the Bible, a tendency to be rebellious against God who created us. And we act it out, or think it out, by breaking or failing to keep God's law. And so that's what the Bible says, is that we're basically rebellious, and that's what Jesus is delivering us from. And so, but here's the question... If that's true, if we're rebels and we are acting in rebellion against our Creator, then how should we be treated by God? Well, how do, how do governments deal with traitors? We should be treated like rebels. We should be punished severely. Okay? So that's what we deserve, but remember the, the word grace? What does that word mean? 
We don't have to get what we deserve. We can actually be given something that we don't deserve, something far greater. And so according to Paul, in an act of pure grace, Jesus gave Himself for our sins for three reasons. Number one, to deliver us from evil. Number two, to carry out the will of God. And number three, to glorify Himself. That's what the text says. In other words, Jesus knew what He came to accomplish and why He came to do it. And notice already, and this is going to be the theme of the entire letter, but notice already that we are passive recipients of this gift of grace. This was a rescue mission by a powerful, capable Savior to rescue helpless, powerless people. That's what the word deliver means. It means to be rescued specifically from bondage, from chains. And what caused that bondage? We did. Our own sin is what He's freeing us from and the consequences of it. But immediately following this brief, uh, really God-centered greeting where he teases the gospel, Paul then launches into the purpose of the letter, and he doesn't waste any time. He gets straight to the point. Verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So it's very clear that Paul is disappointed. He's upset. He clearly wants better things for these churches, for these Christians. In fact, the word deserting is interesting because it carries the meaning of actually being a turncoat. Okay, so it's not simply that they're just walking away from the faith. They're walking away from Jesus back to Satan, back to the enemy. So think of it like a Ukrainian soldier joining the Russian army. Think of it as a politician announcing a switch to the opposite party. That's what Paul is saying that they've done. And this would have, this is what's funny. I, I guarantee you that when the churches open this letter from the scroll or whatever it was written on, and they read it out loud for the first time, and they get to this word, it would have absolutely shocked them. They didn't know they were doing this. And I think Paul wanted them to be shocked by it. 
It's like splashing cold water in the face of someone who's asleep. Doesn't see it. They certainly had no idea that they were in danger of abandoning Jesus for the enemy. But Paul believes that is exactly the danger they are in. The danger comes specifically from distorting what he calls the gospel, which is a message. It's the message of the kingdom. It's the good news about Jesus. But the word distort means specifically to corrupt something. How do you corrupt something? To corrupt something means that you're adding something to it. And by adding something to it, you're making it impure. But I want to suggest that this actually carries even more weight than that. Okay, So for instance, we know that pure gold is more valuable than impure gold, right? So 24 karat gold is worth more than 10 karat gold. And yet, impure gold still has value. But what Paul says is that when the gospel message is corrupted, it becomes no gospel at all. Okay? So when impurities are introduced to it, what he's saying is it doesn't just become kind of less valuable. He's saying it ceases to be valuable at all. In fact, it becomes dangerous. And so I want to suggest to you that this word to sort, it's more like adding a drop of poison to a glass of water. Just a drop. It's just one drop, right? You'd drink it, wouldn't you? No. Because it's corrupted. And that's what Paul is saying about the gospel. You get it off by one drop, one degree, it ceases to be life-giving and it becomes dangerous. And in the coming weeks, we're going to talk more about the men who are causing these problems for the church and the ways in which they were poisoning the pure grace of the gospel. Paul sees them as enemies of Christ, enemies of the, enemies of the church. Verse 8. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. So this is a clear and powerful warning. Paul repeats it twice for emphasis. And what he is doing is he is cursing 
these men for distorting the gospel. Right? Now, I want you to notice this is no ordinary curse. Paul uses the word in Greek. The word is anathema. Okay? We, we would say it anathema, right? It's the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament when God has devoted someone or something to destruction. So in Joshua, when God commands them to go and to wipe out the Canaanites, and he says, I don't know, you know, everything goes. That's the word. Okay? So what Paul is doing here is he is calling down God's judgment on these false teachers. And so, if we really want to translate this into modern English for us to, to get it, for it to hit, it would read more like this. If someone preaches a different gospel, damn them. And then he says it again, in case you didn't hear him. Damn these men. And it's a divine damning, in case you want to put that together and do the math. I couldn't bring myself to say that on a Sunday morning from the pulpit, but you see what I'm saying here? That's what he's saying. That's what he says twice. And so we might ask the question, is that okay for Paul to say? I mean, should he be saying something like this about professing believers? These are professing believers, leaders in the church. And I would say, you know what? Yes. He has a right to say this for at least four reasons. Number one, we believe that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, meaning this is really what God says. Number two, to Paul's credit, he's not pointing the finger only at any specific person, but this is a universal curse because he what? He applies it to himself as well. He says, if I change the message, if an angel changes the message, may God curse me as well. Right? So it's universal. Number three, other people's souls are at stake. Paul understands that people may perish under the wrath of God if the gospel message is distorted or poisoned. And number four, and really most importantly, the glory of God is at stake. The glory of God is at stake. And why does that matter? I want you to think, and we're almost done, but I want you to think of a book or even a movie, a, a story that you love. And I want you to imagine hearing someone you just kind of overhear a conversation where someone is trying to explain that story to someone else, but they get it all wrong. 
and, and you're just a, a bystander, so you don't interrupt, the but you hear it, and it's like, no, that's not how the story goes, right? This is my favorite story. I don't, I don't want to hear people mess it up. Now, imagine that you're the writer, and you're sitting in a coffee shop, and you hear somebody talking about your book, and they get it all wrong, right? It's annoying, Now imagine how God feels that He has created and provided the perfect plan to rescue mankind from from evil, from sin and death. But people keep trying to add things to the story. I want you to imagine taking a Rembrandt painting and splattering neon paint across it. Adding something destroys it. The glory of God is at stake when it comes to the gospel because Jesus is God's masterpiece. He is not okay with anyone adding anything to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is sufficient by itself for our sins. He is not okay with it. He is also not okay with us believing that some other story is just as good. Or that, well, all stories lead to God. No! They don't. They don't. And so if the Bible is to be believed, if the Apostle Paul is to be believed, if he is a man of God and this is the word from God to his church and we're supposed to believe this, the one conclusion that we must draw from today's sermon, from this introduction, is a very simple but extremely important thing. There is only one gospel. There is only one gospel. There are not many ways to God. There is one way to God. Jesus is the way. The one who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.